0: What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me today is Austin Pryor from Malkovich Malkovich Minute Minute. Yo! Welcome back. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's your third time? Third time's third time. a charm, baby. I'm going to have a lot of recurring guests in these shows, I think. Yeah. Not a lot of people want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It takes
1: a certain kind of man or woman or non-binary individual <laughs> to answer this call. Yeah.
0: We are up to minute 27. And so this means session two with Ava has just begun about 45 seconds into the minute, 15 seconds ago. And Ava is showing a drawing to Caleb. And I believe we remain is at this entire minute, Caleb stays out of the shot. That's right. We see his reflection briefly. Yeah. That's it. And it's been that same shot since last minute of her with her arms out holding the drawing. And I kind of like it.
1: Yeah. Stuck like this for a week. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. We got a real study of. Um, uh, sorry, you'll have to forgive me. My, my brain, as I was just explaining to you in the green room there, uh, is full of uh, Westworld for uh, that's a bit of foreshadowing for
0: something for tomorrow. Yeah,
1: And uh, so I just keep going to call her Dolores um, Ava. <laughs> uh, yeah so we get to really kind of study her expression here and her timing and this timing is kind of like (laughs) it's a real just like this film was distributed in the us by a24 and it shows you know it's it's just like (laughs) it's just a lot of pausing and a lot of you know that kind of timing that kind of uh, indie film timing which you know i have i I have a, a taste for but it is it kind of Yeah, this kind of editing, this kind of performance and pacing gives the audience a lot of opportunity to project our own thoughts, feelings, prejudices, surmises onto the characters. And this time watching Ava with all her pausing and her like quizzical look, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like it it, it adds, it might add credence to the she was manipulating all along theory of reading this film. Because she's just kind of creating all of this space for Caleb to do the same kind of projections that I was just saying the audiences can do. So she's just kind of creating this suspense and she's happy enough to kind of leave it hanging there to just create more and more interest from Caleb, more and more kind of intrigue. Or she is truly this innocent and is just kind of yeah. blankly looking at somebody who is saying... And it
0: works both ways really well. Yeah,
1: and it really well because, you know, Caleb is saying you're not trying to draw anything particular, you know, and she just doesn't say anything. She's just like blankly stares like mm-hmm, as if it had never occurred to her to draw something <laughs> in particular, which is kind yeah. of like preposterous if she's fed by information about the outside world, and that's how, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The very concept of drawing that she would have would surely include the notion
0: of sketching from life. Yeah, because she showed him the drawing, and last minute, he asked what it was a drawing of, and she says, don't you know? (laughs) No, I thought you would tell me. That's where this minute comes in. And he's like, don't you know? Did we get a close-up of the drawing? Yes. This scene started with a shot of the drawing from the front, and then it cut to the side view. Okay. And it's basically just these geometrical kind of wedge shapes.
1: Yeah. And it's got a feeling of depth. Like, you could yeah, be it's got down, like a 3d thing going deep on deep into. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: a lot of just straight lines, mm-hmm. which says something about the way she draws, if nothing else. Yeah. And she says, I do drawings every day, but I never know what they're of, which is interesting phrasing.
1: Now, is that true? <laughs> which is, yeah. What they are of. Is that true though? Like, I mean, ha- it, when we see her. Width- That's
0: an interesting question because if she's manipulating him yeah. then the only drawings we know she does are this one and the one that gets ripped up
1: yeah and the one that gets ripped up is representative oh, and,
0: and the tree she does, she draws the tree okay yeah
1: but has she drawn the tree before this or the representational drawing That's before later. this no this yeah, is okay. this is the first
0: drawing we've seen of hers
1: oh uh, okay so Well, I guess that scans then. But uh, yeah. And then I suppose later she has taken his advice to maybe uh, draw draw something. something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which then she draws essentially the view out the window at the other end of the room. Yeah. The tree in the little courtyard. When she says she doesn't know what they're of, she pulls back the drawing and looks at it, which amusingly would be upside down for her. Yeah. As she's like trying to figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. And then she looks up for him and it plays very well as like she's manipulating him, getting him to lean in a little yeah also like a toddler yeah who did maybe just scribble something and they're just like look what i did and you're like yeah what is it And like can't you tell have to look down yeah totally no i have no idea and i don't want to guess because yeah. you'll get upset
1: and so it brings us to a trope that i think we've discussed before yes born sexy yesterday mm-hmm. yeah
0: which is her character is on the one hand she's manipulative sexualized yeah adult On the other hand, she acts like a kid. Yeah, but at no
1: point do I get the feeling that the movie is celebrating that the way it does in the kind of purest form of the trope, the way, you know, like... Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, You know, 80s sex comedies where, oh, you know, I made a living doll and she doesn't know anything (laughs) and uh, I get to fuck her and this is awesome. Whereas this film... Like any of these things that it handles, it's more confronting you with the trope and your own desires than it is like just using the trope for fun or entertainment.
0: Right. Well, and within the film, Nathan is using that trope to manipulate Caleb. Yes. As yeah. He put her in like this is the thing you get to look at and interact with. This is how she is. Yeah. What do you think? Mm, mm. And it that affects everything he's going to think at each step.
1: Why do you think he decided to present her to Caleb unfinished, uncovered like this?
0: I think it's part of, I mean, he does explain it or explained it a few minutes ago. And I think his explanation makes sense is like, we're past that. You're going to know there's a robot when you're doing a test. Otherwise, it's not the test he wants. He doesn't want to involve too many people.
1: Yeah, but later we know that the the way the technology works is the skin is kind of like a smart material that conforms to and you you can swap parts and stuff.
0: Right. It's not that she's unfinished. It's that she is deliberately displaying part of her.
1: yeah yeah yeah. so Nathan covers it in the sense that he's not going to I mean he covers the subject he doesn't cover the robot
0: right when he says
1: you know we're way past that and all that but if he is making her to be as desirable as possible for Caleb why make her all weird unless that's Caleb's kink maybe that was another thing that turned up in his porn profile
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I was gonna say it might be Nathan's as well yes but also I think it fits with the trope in that that might be what nathan will think is attractive to someone to a man is it the idea that she is a robot means you're inherently going to think she's more submissive and obedient
1: yeah maybe yeah
0: and the same thing that she acts kind of like a kid is she is submissive she is yes lesser yeah and you get that immediately visually it's she's not just a woman who's in a room yeah, because he also he probably doesn't want Caleb to be like, yeah, that's just some woman you've a
1: room. Oh, robot. yeah, yeah.
0: That's not a robot. Yeah. So he's got to make sure some of it's visible. Mm-hmm. And then he just uses that. That's part of the game. Yes, essentially. Mm. And yeah, so Caleb asks her, are you not trying to sketch something specific like an object or a person? And she looks down at the drawing again and then up at him. And he says, maybe you could try. And of course, she says, OK, what object should I draw? And the camera finally is moving away from that same angle. It goes past the edge of the vestibule. And we still don't see Caleb yet. We do get his reflection in a moment, but we're not quite there. He says, whatever you want. It's your decision. And she, like, no pause, says, why is it my decision? But
1: yeah, and she and she kind of rankles at the idea. Yeah. And she's like, she's she's indignant. Why is it my decision?
0: <laughs> well, I think... If she's not manipulating him, she is actively trying to figure out why he's there. Mm. And so she is questioning everything he tells her like it's your decision she's like why though what do you want from me. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think she's suspicious of him too at this point.
1: Yeah, because like she has a habit I think of answering questions with questions, you know. Is that what you should? Is that what I should do? Is that what you think? You know, but usually it's kind of in a a challenging way or even a playful way
0: it's a basic computer or yeah or a basic computer
1: simulation where, where like insufficient data i need you, you know where it's like yeah ask for, ask more, for information. more
0: information because then you're doing all the talking but you think they ask something important. yeah
1: but in this case she's like asking why is it my decision in this like very strange indignant moment that i really like and i really Mm -hmm. like the way alicia vikander plays it but it's very odd i don't really know where and how this fits in
0: well yeah and we're still on that same shot so it's like this is the timing she had in that moment or since he's off screen they could have moved his audio closer to her oh interesting as well Yeah, yeah so that her answer comes even faster yeah they could manipulate it after the fact for us but either way, it makes it interesting that she wants to know mm. why is it my decision? She wants to understand what he is telling her. The session isn't just him testing her. She's curious about him, mm. which comes more next minute, especially because she asked specific stuff about him. Yeah. Then he tells her the important thing here. I'm interested to see what you'll choose, which she will throw back at him next minute. And in the script, the conversation continues with her still sitting there in the film, Like she kind of looks away. She's thinking she looks down at the drawing. She leans forward, sets it on the floor. And this is where we kind of see Caleb in the glass and she gets up and walks away, which feels more like the manipulation aspect or maybe a kid that's been fed up with the conversation. It still works both ways.
1: Yeah. Wandering off. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the withholding male kind of like a negging thing, like Mm -hmm. keeping you interested by just kind of walking off and saying, Oh, you know, what's this? You know, like obviously for anybody who is watching the movie along with us and you've just seen this minute, we're talking about quite subtle movements still. This is not mm-hmm. like she's not storming off. And when I no. say indignant there's a hint of indignation in her tone that I'm that there's a bit of angu- ambiguity about it. Like it's not it's a, a dramatic motion. None of this is we're in we're in the realm of, of kind of looking for subtle little cues. But the, the most kind of dramatic thing she does is, is that she does get up and, and walk away and like, actually turn her back. And I think we're you know, the audience is invited to kind of be in Caleb's shoes in that moment and be like, Why? Why why are you being like that? I want to know
0: more. I want to get
1: to know you. I want to get close to you. I want to be inside your mind. And, you know, all that kind of uh, wank.
0: Well, yeah. And then when we've had just enough time to be like, no, come back. She stops. Yeah. And there's a great sound design thing because when she turns her head, it's one of the, there's a few times in the movie where we can hear the mechanical parts and we can hear her neck turn. Yes. Yeah. Because everything else is quiet.
1: Yeah. And it's the kind of choice of sound design in general Mm -hmm. is like if it were all realistic and you only hear what you would hear if you were sitting there, it would be a very strange mishmash of sounds, you know, and it's just like, yeah. Right. I,
0: but they chose for us to hear this moment.
1: Exactly. It's a, everything's a choice. We're being reminded of her mechanical body. We're being reminded of her mechanical nature in a more deep way. Yeah.
0: Which also it could work that way in terms of how the film is dealing with us is we've had this minute to kind of maybe forget that she's supposed to be a robot. Because we've had that same shot where we're kind of getting used to how she's sitting, used to how she's talking. Yeah. And then we get up and see her whole body again. hmm And then we get the noise. Even then, there's a beat before the minute ends where she hasn't said anything yet. She's turning to look at him. Yeah. And she'll have an important question when we get into next minute. But she's still trying to gauge what this conversation's for, I think. And fortunately, the conversation will continue because their last conversation was very short. Yeah, in the film.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like my head canon is always that these conversations went much longer. But I do wish we I think we've both said this before on this podcast that like Mm -hmm. I just wish they had left a bit more room in the editing for us to imagine the hours and hours of conversation that anybody would have and that anybody mm-hmm. would want to have in this
0: situation and that yeah, their dialogue in this session is basically word for word from the script yeah it's the whole thing that is written because that's what they had
1: and if even once in the film there was a montage where we fade in and out and hear snippets of conversations and have like mm, you yeah. know, different like in the middle
0: of a session we cut jump a little forward yeah and, and different something.
1: and just see like You know just like a lockdown camera where you can see okay, here's my pitch for the shot and how it would do it like a lockdown camera where you can see Ava for real through the glass and Caleb as a reflection. And then you see parts of it where like Caleb is up pacing around and you see parts of it where Ava is like showing something on a piece of paper, not just, you know, so, and, and you're just cutting into, and then you hear sn- snippets of the conversation and they're addressing, you know, philosophy and like childhood and memories and, you know, all sort like they're hitting all of these different bases that you would naturally go to and you would like, I don't know, maybe it was felt this I don't know, that's a pretty kind of standard movie making format that I described there, but I think it would be effective and you could do it well. Maybe Alex Garland felt it was too
0: obvious or something to do that. It's not really something he does so far. I mean he's only directed three movies now, but I think it's also the way the movie is playing with us is All the conversations play out kind of in real time Yeah, between Ava and Caleb, between Caleb and Nathan. And so it's just all these little pieces of this week where they're all in the same building and we just have to fill in the blanks Mm -hmm. if we want to. Yeah. Or treat it like a movie. A movie is the parts we see and that's it.
1: Yeah. But this movie kind of perversely commits to telling us that that was the beginning and that was the end of this session and you didn't miss anything
0: that first one especially the they first did one that. especially it like, and oh. it's
1: probably if you went through the movie with a fine tooth comb you'd probably find gaps where you could fit in another conversation or another session altogether or more conversation in the one session but it just in the filmmaking language used it's it's almost like the film is emphatic that like mm-hmm. no you didn't miss anything they barely talk <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's uh, like, th-
0: it's limiting our information for yeah. the test we're doing.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: And I like that. Then in my blog, when I watched this movie for uh, was it six days in a row? Oh, wow. I wrote about the three different levels of programming going on, which is like society programming us of what we think about each other, mm-hmm. Nathan programming Caleb. I didn't yeah. really deal with Ava affecting yeah. Caleb, yeah, then and then the movie affecting us. Like us what is the movie yeah. showing us and why isn't it showing us the things it isn't showing us yeah like it does the trick later of kyoko comes into Ava's room we don't get to see what happens mm, mm. we don't get to see if they have a conversation yeah we're told kyoko doesn't talk maybe there couldn't be a conversation but still they're leaving information out
1: the film also has to contend as all films do with programming of the audience like we all have our own social programming and movies are like one of the most powerful programming tools that have been used on us (laughs) or that we've used on ourselves because films are like you know yes they are machines for creating empathy as a certain podcast might tell us Mm -hmm. but i think they're also machines for creating expectations you know yeah and if you look at the like the definition of genre that's favored by Bob McKee, foreshadowing for Adaptation Minute, <laughs> the way Bob McKee or Robert McKee discusses genre, it's a setting and a mood that creates a set of expectations mm. in the audience. Yeah. And those expectations can be very satisfyingly answered and are subverted in the course of the film. And a good script will have a mixture of it scratches some of your itches and it kind of leaves you wanting more on others. And then it totally flips uh, the itch metaphor won't stretch to this, but it, it, it uh, conforms to some of your expectations, subverts others and kind of gives you an oblique question mark for others still, you know? yeah. And a film that like satisfies everything is probably hyper-commercial could still be great, but is, you know, is kind of simple and kind of straightforward Hollywood fare and a film that's, Subverts so everything is the last Jedi, but don't I had to say it. Sorry. Just that th- those th- that kind of mix. So so what I'm saying. Yeah, so the, the genre is kind of defined in terms of audience expectation because yeah. that's how genres are created. there because a film comes out and it sets audiences' expectations and then somebody else copies it and builds on that and builds on that and builds on that. That's why you know films are so powerful for propaganda because they have this just great way of programming into us and they're kind of brain hacks in a way.
0: Yeah. And if it if they don't hit some of the tropes and some of those expectations as we want them, yeah. we won't deal well with that movie, but we do need them also to subvert some or just ignore some or give us some other piece of some other genre maybe. Yeah, But if they don't have some of what we expect, that's bad too.
1: Yeah. Because if they don't, of some of what we expect, we're kind of at sea as to where we are and what kind of language is being used.
0: Right. We need to know what to expect so we can be surprised.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So anything else on minute 27 of X Machina?
1: Um no, minute 27, I just yeah, it's just kind of drawing us further into the Ava mystery. No, I yeah, that's that's it for me.
0: <laughs> okay. Then if the listeners want to hear you talk about something else where can they find you
1: uh you can go to malkovich that's m-a-l-k-o-v-i-c-h minute.net and that is uh yeah you'll see all the links for the various socials and other ways of getting in touch and there's a contact form and people have sent me rather lovely messages inquiring as to the return of the podcast it will come back someday and they've also sent me through that same contact form. Very thoughtful spam. <laughs> <laughs>
0: very thoughtful spam. That's the In best.
1: great numbers.
0: Thank you for listening. Minutia X Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search An Existential Trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at XMinutia, Instagram at Minutia underscore X underscore Machina, or Facebook at Minutia X Machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with
1: another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction?
0: The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Hmm.
1: So the only other thing that I, something I meant to bring up yesterday, actually, I'm giving you a lot of editing challenges here. Maybe you want to stick it in yesterday's episode, but last time I was on, you used your editor's privilege against me To uh, (laughs) to to counter argue a point I was
0: making. Okay. Well, wait. I don't remember what it was about.
1: Of course you don't, because you wield your power so capriciously and with such abandon.
0: I feel conned. You you
1: don't even remember. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We were talking about the question of whether it mattered, and uh, about about this question that comes up all the time: whether it matters that you're AI or not, and blah, blah blah. Oh, yeah. And. I started coming up with the Blade Runner example, and it comes to the Blade Runner problem. And I was relating the two, but I wasn't making the same exact point. So oh, I meant to re-listen, to maybe maybe won't be able to use this. I meant to re-listen to the episode so that I could gather my thoughts for the counter-counter argument. But the thrust of it was basically this, that my point about Blade Runner was not so much, I, was, I had gone away from the it doesn't matter thing. I was just saying, It gets to be bad storytelling because if Deckard is a replicant in Blade Runner, then it just has that on the surface of it. You get this kind of great, uh, whoa, blow my mind, dude, kind of thought of, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Anyone could be, you know, because of the way the rules of this uh, universe are are set up. But then if you rewatch the film with the thought of him being a replicant, you just have to jump through through so many hoops as an audience that it just becomes boring and it becomes a real stretch. And the idea that Ridley Scott is just like absolutely sure that Deckard is a replicant is makes it even worse because it's now it's not even an oblique. Oh, could he be, would he be, you know, like Ridley Scott is just like flat out saying, no, he definitely is. It's like, okay, if he definitely is, what's the story of this film? It's the story of this robot who thinks he's human dealing with another robot who thinks she's human. But he has to be a different model and use a kind of a technology that they haven't used. And he has to be bought by the LAPD who don't use them. And it just, it creates so many other problems for the story. Whereas if he's a human being, his arc is much more meaningful. His flawed humanity is his flawed humanity, not they put the wrong memories in him. It just—it just works a hell of a lot better uh, as storytelling. So that was more than it doesn't matter in that universe. I was—that's more what I was saying rather than saying it doesn't matter. It was just saying that it's—it's it's dumb.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I have a feeling this might stretch on in the uh, in the edits because, like I say, I I meant to re-listen to the episode before with that counter argument.
0: Well, what I'll do, and I'll leave this in. <laughs> Is I'll take this part from you. I'll cut it out of this, put it at the after the outro on yesterday's Mushax Machina. But then if it comes up, I'll also record a response. Yeah, I know you will. I know you will.
1: And you won't be drinking wine while you're doing your response. So you'll trump me again. Yeah. Wielding that power again. Okay.
0: We'll have beef between our podcasts.
1: I love it. I love it.
0: Apologies for the background noise. If there is any, I was doing the edit while laundry was going. Oops. Forgot I was going to have to record something, but here's my thing. <laughs> I don't think it's dumb. I don't think it's bad storytelling. I think it tells us something, telling us something about the world. It's like the, I go back to the book. I don't know if you, Austin, have read it or you in the audience have read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But in that story, there's also this impulse to imagine that Deckard is not human. But the whole point sort of to the story is that all of the humans that are left on Earth, all the humans that are left in L.A., are essentially less human than what they would have formerly been. The world has changed. It has moved on. It is a post-apocalyptic sort of wasteland outside the city, this urban hellscape in the city. And yeah, they have this... You say the LAPD don't use replicants, but they do if they do. The movie doesn't negate that. In fact, if Deckard is a replicant, as we're supposed to assume, and Ridley Scott says, then obviously the LAPD has one. And in 2049, they have another, because that's useful. Who else is going to be out there policing other than people that aren't really human? (laughs) Just to make it extra, like, political or something. I don't think it makes Decker's journey less meaningful. He's a man who is, Harrison Ford embodies it so well, it's probably, I would say it's probably his best role, because he embodies so much that sort of, I'm tired of doing this thing I have to do all the time, and I just want something better for my life, and there isn't anything better for his life, and that's a problem for him, a problem for the world that he's in. And the idea that he might be programmed that way just makes it even more of a tragedy for him. And it, that these other replicants, he should be becoming like their friend. Instead, of he's out there and he, all he has to do is his job is just to kill them. I know I'm not drinking wine, but also I forgot I was going to have to do this. I forgot your episodes were next, so I didn't think about it beyond the impulse. But I don't think it makes it less meaningful to not have him be human, just like for Ex Machina. I don't think it makes the story any lesser if Caleb is also AI. It makes it more a question of what does that tell us about us? It doesn't have to be about the story. It doesn't have to be about the characters. It can be about the world. If it's not about the world, it can be about our world. It can be about us and the audiences. If we're wondering, is this guy a robot? What does that tell us about what we see as that dividing line between artificial intelligence and natural intelligence? Sentience and facsimile. I think I said this actually just last week. If the difference between the two is negligible, that negligibility is an important thematic aspect for the audience, or should be. And if the audience isn't blown away by that idea and can just enjoy the story for the story, that's fine too. Your turn.